Age should not be perceived as a limiting factor in the advancement sector. That's what the LSU Foundation's VP of Development, Krista Rainey, believes, and she's made incredible strides early in her career. Krista's experience shows that by combining a great attitude, a strong work ethic, professional mentorship, and a commitment to delivering results, rapid progression might just be possible within your current institution. I hope you enjoy meeting Krista and that you leave the conversation as inspired as I was. One quick note, if you're enjoying the Rays series or if you have any constructive feedback, please feel free to shoot me an email at brent at evertrue.com. And please leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks. And here we go. Greetings, Rays listeners. Today, it is a privilege to host Krista Rainey, who is the Vice President of Development at the LSU Foundation. Welcome, Krista. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a real pleasure, and I definitely want to get into what you're doing now. And we are just going to hit this head on up front and not shy away from it. You are one of the youngest development leaders in the country, at, at certainly at a large public institution like LSU. And that is going to be a topic that we discuss today. I'm not going to ask you how old you are. However, I do know that roughly 10 years ago this week, you were graduating from LSU. That is correct. Yep. And I read that at one time you said nobody at 10 years old says, I'm going to ask strangers to <laughs> give away their hard earned resources. Yet now you are not only doing that, you are leading a team of people asking strangers and some friends now to give away their hard earned resources. Who are you and how did you get to that point? That is a, that's a great question. You know, I hadn't reflected on the fact that this would sort of be like my 10 year reunion uh, the reunion for, episode. For everybody's my, doing, which is everybody's exciting, doing virtual also, reunions. Yeah, it's exciting and also troubling that an entire decade has blown by. Um, so, yes, you know, at ten years old, I certainly did not think that I would be a fundraising professional, and that's sort of one of the things I love about our profession is that it, it's people don't typically come by it by way of you know knowing I want to be a doctor and they're a doctor. Um, and I think that's what makes our profession really neat is because we end up with a, a real variety of, of folks. I'm from a really small um, bayou town in Louisiana. It's called Homa, Louisiana. And if anyone has seen the movie Waterboy, where they're driving lawnmowers, that's sort of where I'm from. Now, we, we didn't drive lawnmowers and we, you know, don't eat alligator off, you know, while sitting under our clotheslines in our front yard. Um, I'm from uh, uh, that, that type of town. Um, I am one of four and was the third in line to go to college and, you know, ever the middle child, I was not going to follow my sister and my brother who had gone to LSU, but had the quintessential go visit on a college football Saturday, you know, the sparks flew, the fireworks went off and, and I knew that LSU would be the right uh, place for me as well. I had a phenomenal experience at LSU, I was one of those that was really greatly impacted by not only my academic experience, but my um, extracurricular, you know, social experience, if you will. And much of the early skills I had as a fundraiser actually came from student involvement um, in my undergraduate experience. So, um, as you know, Brent, I was actually supposed to do the Teach for America program and teach third grade math. 
which would have been problematic for all involved. Um, and I met a professional from the LSU Foundation at, a, an, ev at an event the week um, I was actually set to graduate. And they, they said, you know, you should really think about doing development, which I did not even know what that meant, but I understood that it would mean working at my alma mater, which was a dream, you know, certainly come true. And I would be working with people, which um, I always say, you don't want me to build your house. Um, you don't necessarily want me to do your taxes, but you want me to plan your parties and negotiate your deals. So it felt like a really great um, homecoming, if you will. And so what I have come to love about working for LSU and, and what has, what, you know, I thought I would do this work for two years and then see where things would take me. But what I fell in love with quickly is that I am, I'm one of four. Um, I came, to, was able to go to college uh, because I had scholarship support and what LSU does um, very, very well. In fact, we're number 13 in the nation for what we call social mobility. So we take, students, first-generation college students, students from homes um, where incomes may be below the poverty line, and we launch those students to really successful careers. And my siblings have been a product of that, and I have been a product of that. And so that's what, what kept me hungry and has certainly kept me at LSU. And fast forward 10 years later, um, I, I have the opportunity and really the honor to, to lead the fundraising strategy um, at my alma mater. Incredible. And so that being said, that was a quick pivot because Teach for America, really hard to get into. And you'd obviously worked hard at that. You have one conversation with the donor at some event and then your whole career gets pivoted. I mean, what was it that, you know, maybe you had some doubts about the TFA path um, or maybe it really was just not even knowing that development is a career path, which honestly I think is a huge missed opportunity uh, for so many uh, advancement leaders who are who are seeking uh, a diverse talent pipeline, and we've got all of these students, but there are folks like you who, by the way, I, I looked at your resume, orientation team leader uh, when you were at LSU, student recruiter for the College of Arts and Sciences, LSU ambassador, member of the homecoming court, uh, sorority, uh, Tiger 12. I mean, you were... Uh, we named our company ever true after people like you, basically you were ever true to LSU out of the gates. And so, um, but you have this conversation with a donor and you really think, wow, maybe I should sort of pivot off of this, this path around education, but still staying in education. Yeah. So uh, teacher America is such an exceptional organization. And in fact um, that if they're so important to me that I have the, pleasure of serving on our local board for Teach for America because I felt like I needed to, to do something and give back in, in some way. They're an exceptional organization. In that moment, you know, we, we've talked about this, Brent, there have been parts of my career that have been very strategic and intentional. And there's parts of my career where sort of luck, fortune, lightning in a bottle struck. And I will say, I look back on that one conversation at that event very much in that, in that way. Um, as I was talking to that individual, I could feel their passion behind what they were doing. And LSU had been a game changer for me. And it had really helped me in four years blossom um, in, in a number of ways. And so it was, I remember calling my oldest sister who um, has always been a great guide. And I said, 
so something weird, like I just had this crazy conversation and I think I want to do this. And it was for less money, significantly less money. Um, and she said, you're, I can hear just your excitement in your voice. And I, I think you should go for it. And I said, I, I think I should too. So I'm, I'm fortunate that it worked. It has worked out the way that, uh, it has, but to your point, what I have loved, there's several things that I'm so proud of the advancement industry in the last 10 years. And one of those things is a real professionalization around what we do and people now seeing advancement as a very real career versus something you stumble into after you're fatigued from sales or you're, you're tired of commercial banking and, and want to try something a bit more altruistic. We're seeing more and more individuals want to choose this from the outset. And I think that that's so, that speaks to so many of those that have come before us. And then those of us hopefully who have honored that initial commitment and now the next generation uh, coming into this industry. Yeah, we were just commenting. One of my uh, recent guests was Lynette Marshall, who's the CEO of the University of Iowa Center for Advancement. And Krista had mentioned that she listened to that episode uh, in advance of this. But when you think about Lynette in 1983, walking into her job the first day and basically there being a typewriter and a dean mm -hmm. and, and not much else to sort of where we are now, it really is amazing to see the progression. Um, that being said, I am curious what it's like as you uh, you uh, throw the hat in, in May or June of 2010, and then in July, you become Krista, the Assistant Director of Development at LSU. Um, what were those first, I don't know, weeks, months, a lot of formative cultural relationships often get formed at the beginning. What was that like, um, if you can think think about those first few days? That whole first year is such a blur. I refer to it now as the wild, wild west. I had, there were two great things happening. I had no idea what I was doing and I was fearless because I didn't know any better. And so what was great, it was a, it was a wonderful time of discovery. I was very fortunate to work for um, uh, a man named Rhett Butler. If you're in the South hearing that, yes, Rhett Butler, like on with the wind. Um, and he was a great first teacher for me. He was an exceptional relationship builder. He helped me to understand the nuance of relationship and how to um, be warm, but strategic. Um, how I remember him sitting in my office doing calls so that I could hear how he, how he reached out to people. And that um, I am absolutely an auditory and a visual learner. So that was, that was super for me. Um, but I remember calling people and, and I didn't even know to be scared of cold calling. So it was great. I think that that fear factor actually built as I went through my career. Um, any, any great cold calls or terrible cold calls that, that, you know, excited um, you or scarred you anything? come to mind. No worries if not. Yeah. So I, you know, I, what I had to get over pretty quickly and I was fortunate to get over this quickly. And it's one of my first pieces of advice when someone joins our team, that's never done advancement. I say to them, you have to know it's not about, it's not about you. And it's, if you get rejected, if you get hung up on, they're, they're not hanging up on Krista Rainey or Brent Grinna. They're, they're hanging up on LSU or they know you're calling for money and there's just a lack of readiness. And so once I got over that, I, I, I felt really, um, I felt great calling anyone. I, was, I have been hung up 
on so many times, but I can remember the first time I got hung up on. I remember looking around and I was in an office by myself. And in fact, my first office was actually, I loved hearing Lynette's description. Mine was a copy paper room. So I had a desk with as, as high as the wall, you know, to the ceiling of copy paper. And I can remember looking around like at the copy paper and no one was in there. Like, did, did you guys hear me just get hung up on? So um, I've had some, you know, most, most folks who graduate from LSU, if they're talking to you, um, they may say they're not interested, but they're never rude. Typically, you'll just get hung up on. Um, I can remember the first time I called and got a visit and someone said yes to a visit. And that was um, such, a, such a motivating factor for me. Like, okay, I got, I got one out of 15. I'm, I'm going somewhere. Again, at that time, I didn't, I didn't know what best practice ratios were. I didn't know how many calls it should take me to get one visit. So it was, it was this really um, neat time of discovery. I was given a lot of room to make mistakes, not, not anything that would be catastrophic, but to, to learn and test. And I think so much of what can be challenging in major gift work is you've got to find your style that you're really comfortable in. And I was given bumpers, but wide bumpers to try to figure that out. Um, so it was just, you know, that first year was really spent um, learning vernacular. I remember the first time someone said Liebunt to me or Cybunt, you know, I thought we were talking about like Star Trek. So um, I'll, I will always be grateful to Rhett for that first year for the College of Humanities and Social Sciences for taking a chance on a 22 year old graduate because it was, a, it was the perfect um, start to an early fundraising career. So it's a blur, but definitely some poignant memories, both the first time you lock the visit and then the first time you get hung up on. When did you start to feel like you were building capacity or, or when you were starting to succeed? And some of it, it sounds like was, was good mentorship, mm -hmm. uh, but then also um, uh, obviously, you, you know, you go from that early phase of just trying to get the meeting to then actually conducting the meeting and then you're following up on the meeting. Um, and, and I'm curious sort of when you started to feel like, wow, I, I can do this. I can do this well and I should aspire to do more. Yeah, I was. Um, so after that first year in humanities and social sciences, at that time, LSU was undertaking our first private public partnership fundraising capital project. So it was the first time the state was going to match donor money 50-50 to build a building at LSU. And we were building a business school. And I was fascinated by the project. And I thought, well, year one was pretty cool. I like this. If I'm going to stay in this work, I probably should know a little bit about capital project fundraising. Um, the senior director of the College of Business at that time is, I call her the godmother of fundraising really at LSU um, and, and, and in Louisiana, her name is Karen DeVille. And she was inspiring. And I thought she could teach me what I needed next. And so um, it was my second, my first year, I felt like I did nothing right. I felt, you know, so I closed gifts and I had great visits, but I just didn't feel like um, Karen was a tough manager, but one of the best managers I have ever had. I have such gratitude to her. Tell me more um, about that. Why? I mean, because that's a tough balance. Tough, but so fair. She was tough, fair. Um, she was so focused on the people who came to work for her. When she interviewed you, you could tell part of what she was doing. She was certainly assessing 
if you would be an asset to the College of Business. But then she was next assessing how she could best help you become who you wanted to be. And I didn't realize that that was happening in the interview process. You know, nine years in the rear view, I certainly see that now. Um, but Karen wanted you to be the best that you could possibly be. And she understood for me very quickly that that meant always putting my bar a little bit out of reach to keep me very, very motivated um, in, in learning and growth. And she had done this work a long time and had, had been a, a woman early on in the fundraising industry and had taken, you had taken, had learned some things the hard way that she didn't want her team to have to learn the hard way. A great example of some of the things she, she taught us um, you know, I'm, I'm from the deep South. Everyone is Mr. And Mrs. Everyone is ma'am and sir. And I was 23 when I started working for Karen and day one, she said, here's the deal from here on out. Unless anyone tells you otherwise, they are first name. Uh, they are not Mr. Whomever because you're there to represent LSU. You're a professional and they need to know at the outset that, that you are on the same level. And that was such a little thing that actually was a huge thing that made such a difference for me as I, as I began to build my career. So year one, working with Karen, lots of um, mentorship, coaching, hard work, um, professionalizing. You know, I went from working in the liberal arts to working in a business school. I had not taken a single accounting or finance course. So, you know, had to learn that very quickly. But I will say year two at the business school is when I really felt like I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm confident in what I'm talking about. Um, I'm confident going into meetings on, on how, to, how to structure a meeting, how to get somebody from so nice to meet you to by the end of that first meeting, knowing their capacity, their readiness, and knowing what my next step should be. Talk uh, about that because that's a lot. In, in a first meeting. But I guess your point is, I mean, you're really talking about discovery and qualification because sure. the, you know, the most valuable asset we have in fundraising is time. Sure. And if we're not using our time with the right prospects, you might feel good sometimes. They might be fun to hang out with or, or socialize with, um, but they might be the wrong prospects for the wrong, you know, for a given project. I mean, how do you, how do you do that without being you know, too assertive or too passive? I mean, do you have a philosophy or a style or if you want to role play me as the donor, that's fine too. But how'd you, how would you think about that? So it's such a dance, you're right. It's because it is the perfect balance between being direct and business forward and also understanding that the crux of great fundraising is exceptional relationship building. Um, one of the things for me, the way that I work naturally on anything is I want to know what that next step is. What is the next deliverable? And so early on in my first set of meetings, so my first two years, that was something I found I was frustrated about, that sometimes I would leave meetings not knowing what I should do next. And I remember thinking, why don't I just find the way to ask these questions so that I know what comes next, so that I, it's not an awkward, hey, how are you doing from our first meeting? Can I come back and see you again? I wanted these individuals, certainly my donors, my prospects, to know what I would be coming back on. Um, and, or, and even for me to have a natural next thing to follow up on. Let me just say, perfecting my method of doing that 
is probably one of the things I've worked the hardest on. I still work on it. You know, 10 years later, millions and millions of dollars later, I still work on it because it is, um, one, it deserves that. But two, I think as we evolve as professionals, our, our style also adapts. And in the role that I'm in now as a VP of development, my style should be different than it was as a director of development at the business school. But when I'm working with, when I go in to see a prospect for LSU, first and foremost, I want them to know I'm grateful for the time. And so I, I want to make that known early on. And I truly am grateful for the time. I, I, I absolutely want to know their story. What I love about the work that we get to do is we get to visit with extraordinarily successful people who have figured a lot of things out, um, many of whom have come from very, very humble beginnings. And so I joke that one of the really nice um, benefits of this work is you feel like you get to have a masterclass with all of these people um, who have achieved extraordinary things. So I want to hear their story, uh, certainly because I'm genuinely interested, but also because our current students, I want to find ways that our current students can get this information. And then I want to get to an appropriate business-like conversation because these people know why we're coming. And so I feel like it does them a disservice um, to not in some way talk about why we're there and to figure out what is the right next pacing for a meeting, for a contact. And what I'll say is, you, you know this, Brent, no, no meeting is, no one meeting is the same, mm -hmm. right? And if I'm in a conversation with someone and as I'm starting to get into the business portion, it's evident to me that they are, they are really angry about something that happened during their LSU experience or something that's happened post their experience, but that they're still frustrated in. I'm absolutely not going to talk about resources in that, you know, or a gift in that first meeting, right. but I am going to explore what is the right next step to begin to build their relationship back to LSU. You have an example. So I might say something like, um, if we could do anything in this next year to improve your perception of who we are as your alma mater, what might that look like? And people are honest. If they're angry, they're probably passionate and they actually do care. If the meeting is going swimmingly, which we all love, right? Um, then I might say something like, um, this, was, this was fantastic. And, and I heard you say that LSU is a special place for you. As you think about long range, as, as our relationship builds and your connection to LSU builds, um, are there certain projects or entities or parts of LSU that matter most to you? And if they say students, then great. I know that as our relationship matures, I should probably be talking to them about student scholarships or my next touch point should most likely involve something with a student. So I wanna be tactfully direct um, and uh, tactfully tenacious in my approach because I want, I want to take care of that relationship and move it forward in the right way. And especially in a way that honors them as a donor um, and as an alum of the university. What about when it doesn't go well? I mean, I am curious, have you had any just horribly unsuccessful first visits, anything you're, you're comfortable sharing? We don't got to go there, but. Uh, yes. So this is, um, we all have one, right? I mean, that's sort of the equivalent of, you know, getting hung up on, mm -hmm. at least that's fast. It's, you know, maybe a little painful, but the Band-Aid is ripped off versus being in person with someone who just is flat out, <laughs> you know, not not really interested not in yes and i will tell you that the bad meetings are the ones i've learned from the most 
And, and, and listen, 10 years later, I, I tell our team this all the time, 10 years later, I still have meetings that are tough. You know, it's, they don't ever go away. The, the, the challenges morph and, and mature, but they don't go away. But I will never forget my worst meeting ever was I was in my second year, my first year at the business school, and I was visiting with a CEO of a major national insurance company. And um, the meeting was going fine, but at that point I hadn't honed my skills in how to like really architect a meeting, how to really build the, the, the curve of the meeting and to move us through it and get to the, to the end. And so it was just, it was just awkward. There's a lot of, um, there was a lot of silence, which is also something I had to learn to grow, to be comfortable with. Um, but it, but it was just, it just was not really successful. And so I randomly pivoted to, I knew we had sons and I knew we had sons at, in, at, uh, at, at different universities. And so I pivoted to that and I said something ridiculous, like, well, that's nice, but maybe someday they'll want to go to like a real university like LSU and the look on his face. And I didn't mean, I meant it like a funny, ha ha, we're, we're both LSU alumni, but the look on his face, I remember thinking, I just, I just, I just want to die. I just want to sink under this chair and just go out of this room and pretend we never met. Um, and he, he could not have been more gracious in the moment, which speaks to his character. Um, but I remember walking to the elevator. I was nearly in tears because I was so embarrassed. And I thought, I will never do that again. I will go and, and figure this out and work harder than I have ever worked. Because not only did I fail him, but I failed myself, which meant I, fell, I failed LSU. To his credit, he took another meeting and I was able to come in and say, um, I want to apologize. That was a reflection of my um, newness in this profession. And you certainly, you deserved better. LSU deserved better. Um, and I'd love for us to just have a fresh start. I was shaking as I said all of that to him. And, you know, he said, Krista, I think it takes a lot of guts to come back in here and to, to apologize and to be candid. And he said, let's absolutely have a fresh, clean start. And now he's one of my um, favorite donors. We have an exceptional relationship, but I needed to learn that. Clearly, I needed to learn that lesson early on. And it was, I turned it into a motivating factor for me to ensure that I never, that no one ever had an experience like that, like that with me going forward. <laughs> I feel so much better because I was feeling guilty for a minute there about taking you down that memory lane. So I'm glad that it was a, uh, oh, you turned a around. relationship in the end and that it's been yeah. a good, uh, yeah. good supporter. Thank you. I mean, look, I think that's part of it is um, any, anybody advancing through their career, especially if you're in a, you know, marketing or sales type capacity, which, which I, I would argue fundraising is, you've got to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and, and you've got to, you know, I think not let the highs get too, too high and not let those lows get you to a point where, where you're shaking. But we all have those moments early in our career. I can remember some of our earliest customer conversations where we made mistakes, flat, like we made some bad mistakes. And I remember some of these calls with some of my, you know, early colleagues where we just, we thought it was over. We're like, this is, it's like end of the world. Like let's, we're going to have to closed down and you know it's never as bad as it seems uh but also it's not you know always uh 
as good. Uh, I think it's always uh, worse for the for the deliverer for sure. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you uh, learn a lot. You have some of those formative early moments and continue to uh, to grow in your role. And early on, it looked like within four or five years after working on that that business school project partnership with the state, which I know there's a lot of complexity. Um, you then were in an oper- or put in a position to really assume more of a management role. Is that right? Yes. And so I'm sure uh, everybody was really excited for their manager to be five years out of school, um, just guessing that that was the initial reaction. What was that like? Yeah, I, I certainly, what was great about the opportunity is that it was, I was asked to build a cohort model bringing three senior colleges together to, to, to make one like super team. So I think what worked in my favor was that no one had ever done this before. I will tell you, I was told to my face. So, I mean, at least I was told to my face that I would fail by several people that managing three deans was um, not possible and that I was really being set up for failure. And so certainly I had those moments where I thought, um, I'm going to be younger than some of the people I'll be managing. I am following um, individuals who either were, were asked to leave or did not achieve the outcomes that were, were called for. And so, you know, um, that presented some challenges. But I think ultimately what worked in my favor is no one had ever done this. And so I, I just thought of it that way. You know, no one's ever done this. There's a lot of unknown. So... Um, I need to just do the next right thing. Certainly I had 30, 60, 90s and I had goals. You know, I, I told, um, I remember telling our VP at the time, I'm going to raise 5 million in the first year. And he said, listen, if you raise 5 million in the first year, like I will owe you a really great bottle of wine. Um, and so certainly I had those plans, but a lot of it, I just needed to do the next right thing. I did get to build some of my team, which was also very, very helpful. Um, we had some people on the team who, to their credit, um, embraced me and said, I want to help you to be successful because I want these units to be successful. And uh, we built the team. Uh, we went from a team of three to seven in the first year. Um, and we did raise uh, more than $5 million. So I did get that good bottle of wine. Uh, but it's, I absolutely, I had my fears and trepidations, but I was fortunate to, um, to have people that wanted these units to really be successful. That there was a bigger jump, certainly, from that standpoint when I stepped into the, to the AVP role. But that first group was just awesome. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like some of the same skills you developed to be assertive, but you know, still patient with donors, you probably had to put to work to get buy-in for that super team building and this new direction as well. So do you feel like you're kind of, you've got a portfolio of uh, uh, internal colleagues as well that, you know, you need touch point plans to manage and, and so forth? I mean, how do you think about the internal relationship? Yes. Building? Yeah, I think, look, I think internal relationships are just as critical as your external relationships. Um, certainly at any university, relationships are critical. Um, at LSU, relationships are everything. Um, we are a people culture. And so I was certainly fortunate that I had spent four years as, as an undergrad 
getting to know some individuals. So I had, I had a, a nice head start, yep. uh, certainly in a very different capacity. But I've always, um, you know, one of the things that Karen DeVille said to me early on was, as you work alongside of people, always remember that someday you may be their boss, but more importantly, someday they may be your boss. And that was such fantastic advice. And um, as I work with, to this day, as I work with our internal stakeholders, I think of them as the same level of them, at the same level of, as importance as our, some of our best donors, because without them, you know, without deans that we have exceptional relationships with, you know, we are here. I always say this, we are here um, to be the connectors and the pipelines for, you know, donors to LSU. And so I need our deans, our faculty to be great. And the only way that they can be great is if we have exceptional trust-based relationships where they know that I'm here and our team is here to make them successful. And that's when the magic really starts to happen. So yes, when you're building a brand new team where you're trying to bring three deans together and get them excited about sharing, uh, there was a lot of, you know, I had to ask for some trust and some grace and promise to deliver. And fortunately we did that. But uh, many skills that were honed working with donors, I, I absolutely did use and still use to this day with our internal uh, campus stakeholders as well. Which is uh, going to be even more important in the coming months. Just recently, you've assumed this vice president of development role right in concert with your 10th reunion. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of change in the world right now. There's been a lot of change at your organization. Uh, but um, just sort of take me through what that transition uh, has been like uh, and then really what you're most excited about as you think about shaping uh, the vision in the next chapter here. Sure. Uh, so I, um, after three years working on that super team, if you will, in that cohort, I was asked to serve as our associate vice president for development, which was um, really a dream come true for me uh, to get to work with my donors that I um, just absolutely love, but also be given the opportunity to work and lead, work alongside and lead our team. Uh, that was such a humbling moment to get to step in into that. And I have loved, I spent two years as our, uh, as our AVP and loved it, learned a ton. Um, and we achieved a lot of great outcomes. And about a month ago, um, our, our CEO came to me and asked if I would, um, knowing that we needed to restructure the organization based on refreshed and refocused priorities for LSU, along with some shifting budget um, resources due to COVID, uh, he came to me and said, I'd like you to serve as our vice president for development and help uh, our organization navigate this um, transition and this restructure. And so um, I was surprised. I was, you know, I would use the word humbled and honored again. Um, and, and so we're, we're four weeks in into that uh, now. Wow. And, um, and so it really was a surprise. I mean, you, you didn't expect that yet here you are, you're in the midst of COVID. Um, it's hard to think too much about long-term, but I, I think that we and other companies have talked so much about the short-term and the pandemic that I actually would love to kind of get your view on um, 
when you think about where the advancement sector uh, has been over-investing, or maybe LSU has been over-investing or under-investing, um, I'm curious if you have any sort of ideas or areas that you'd like to focus on as you step into this role? Sure. So I'm going to start with under-investing. I think that we, we at LSU, and I, I, I would surmise, you know, comprehensively nationally, where we, one of the places we've been under-invested, I believe, is at the mid-level. So not your very early on annual giving donor. Um, so, so not your $25 or $100 annual fund donor and not your $25,000 and above donor, but that sweet spot right in the middle, that person that is a loyal $1,000 donor or that $5,000 donor you know, every year, um, that person who's demonstrating very interesting um, giving behaviors moving from 500 to 750. I, I do not think we've spent enough time there. Um, those are some of our, arguably our most loyal friends and they are our next pipeline. They're, at, they're absolutely, you know, two years out, three years out, four years out, next generation of pipelines, certainly future plan givers. Um, we took a stab at this group um, two years ago with three um, officers, which we called strategic engagement officers. We drove um, good results. In fact, one of, one of the things I'm most proud of from that group is actually our retention number. So we were blowing out the blowing our retention figures out of the water in comparison to what our comprehensive university retention rate was because we were working very tactically on moving these individuals, these mid-level donors, um, at, at the bare minimum, bringing them back, retaining their gift. But we were also beginning to really focus on how to upgrade these donors and finding some early success. Because at LSU, we need to, especially in this next year, in the corresponding years, we know we need to deliver cash for the university to be able to invest in students, scholarships, and facilities, um, and programs as well. Part of our strategic pivot in our restructure is we will take that three-person team of strategic engagement um, officers who are located centrally, and we will have 11 mid-level officers that work comprehensively across the campus in, and they will work in our colleges and units. And so what I'm most excited about, Brent, and I'm going to nerd out for a second here, is I can't wait to see how we're able to take our annual fund program who's, that's so well-led and run it alongside these mid-level officers and, and to capitalize on synergies and to, make, and to make it so that we're working really in tandem and lockstep. Because again, you know, our major gift officers, are, they're, they're out there, they're making it happen, they're hitting the home runs but we got to keep feeding them the pitches. So I think where we've spent a lot of energy the last several years at LSU and every, everybody's doing this and they, we have to, right? We spent a lot of time in that acquisition space. We all know the hardest and most expensive donor to get is that new one. And it's absolutely important that we continue to have an eye towards acquisition. But what we will be doing is, is pivoting from doing this much acquisition and this much working with the warm known entity to, to this much acquisition and really maximizing the donor experience for people giving to LSU to work them through our pipeline. You know, we're still um, 
a, a learning and growing university foundation. LSU didn't have to get good at fundraising until about 10 years ago. And so we've worked rapidly to get very good. So we've, we've had to build our donor base quickly, but we still have a lot of people in that mid-level section that are making first gifts, maybe second gifts. So we are going to invest and we are investing very um, intentionally in that mid-level on that, that new um, group of donors to begin moving them forward through the pipeline. And I think in general, we spend a lot of time, we sometimes spend an equal time in acquisition and um, we're going to have some answers this year. We're going to learn a lot. I, I certainly do not pretend to have all of the answers, but I am eager to see what happens when we really focus on those that have already raised their hand to say yes. And, and then in appropriate measure, look at those who have yet to raise their hand and, and to acquire them. So from an underinvesting perspective, um, that, that's what I would say strategically. Uh, look, I would, also, I would also say as someone who is such a champion for professional development because of, of what I personally have received, I will never think we're investing enough and I will never feel like I'm giving enough back to my team, that I'm giving enough back to the next generation of fundraising um, senior directors and leaders. So, you know, I would always say that. From an over-investing uh, over perspective, I think especially for this next year, Brent, and the corresponding years, large-scale alumni events, I don't think they make as much sense. I will tell you in this last year, one of the things that we started doing, you know, we would go to cities and have these big 250 and 300 person events and, and what, a, you know, how much fun to look around the room, you know, one, this year we had one in Houston, 300 person event. And it was the week after we beat the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa national champs. I should have opened that, you know, this with that. And so it was so energizing, 300 people. It was great. Go Tigers. Um, effective. The day before we had done a 20 person dinner and it was so, I, arguably it was absolutely more effective. We have closed several seven figure gifts from that group and the dinner um, the night before was completely paid for, hosted by a donor. We were fortunate that the next evening um, was mostly covered with donors, but we did have some costs associated. And if you were to ask me, okay, Krista, with time, to your point, time being finite, resources being more constrained than ever, I absolutely believe as we think about major gift programs, uh, the smaller, uh, more intimate, more strategic events are going, I think are gonna be the, the order of the day. And I think we're gonna have much more successful outcomes with them. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, it's kind of like um, prior to all of this, Evertrue was doing a lot of conferences, a lot of case conferences or, or Big Ten or SEC, et cetera. And um, it's sort of the same dynamic, which is, you know, you do the booth and 300 people walk by and you get all the business cards. Uh, but if you can have the dinner with the 10 right people and facilitate the right conversation, it always... Um, it always is more, I think, beneficial to the attendees and then certainly strengthens the relationship um, from our perspective. But I think we get pulled into that same frenzy of, well, you got to go to District 1 and District 2 and District 3 and that one and this one. 
And, and I think the, the real missed opportunity, at least we've experienced, but I think I've also witnessed with many of our um, uh, fundraising partners in the higher ed sector is there's so much time and energy spent into planning the event, promoting the event, getting the people to the event, but really the magic should happen after the event. And I think part of the issue when you've got the 300, 300 person group in Houston, where there's good vibes and, and, and great energy is, what is the follow-up plan? And if the follow-up plan is an email that says, thanks for coming to our event, uh, you know, don't forget to make your annual gift, that would be like us sending an email to all of our case booth attendees saying, thanks for stopping by the booth, don't forget to buy Evertrue. Like it just wouldn't really work. And right. unfortunately I see that that sort of disconnect between alumni engagement and follow-up. I'm encouraged when I hear about this strategic engagement officer role, for example, and might there be an opportunity down the road to really marry some of that work so that if 300 people do show up in Houston, the top 20 are going to be stewarded by you and some of the more senior uh, development officers. But could you start to say to the, to the uh, mid-level folks, hey, here are the top 70 that mm -hmm. warrant one-to-one follow-up that you should be doing outreach the same way that you were as a, a, a assistant director in your first job uh, following up. And, and I feel like that is one of the real missing links at the middle of the giving pyramid is the, the follow-up after the engagement. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so uh, exciting to hear that um, you are uh, in a position to make some of the investments with more of the mid-level officers and definitely want to track um, how that goes. I, I, I think I want to be, you know, conscious of time, but we, we've talked um, about the fact that you uh, have assumed a leadership role early uh, in your career, and yet gave me a quote that I just want to hit on uh, as we start to uh, close here. And the quote was that age, if, I said, if you could wave a wand and change one thing about the advancement industry, what would it be? And your response was age as a perceived limiting factor. And I'd just be curious to get you to uh, share a bit on that, uh, recognizing that you are uh, in the deep South. You are a woman. Uh, you are in a, a, a culture where, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon that historically the donors would be more male uh, or, or um, you know, influencing some of those decisions, especially in a relatively young uh, advancement and fundraising context. Yet, in spite of all that, it sounds like largely thanks to uh, a great work ethic, good attitude, and great mentorship, you've been able to succeed. So when you think about age being a perceived limiting factor, how have you experienced that? And how do you hope to ensure that it is not uh, as you lead uh, the development team at the foundation going forward? I So this is something I'm really... Um passionate about. And first, let me say, um, I do not think there's any substitute for experience. Um, what I have learned even in the last four weeks as the VP of development um, is a great reminder to me that that experience is important and, um, and experience comes with time. So first, let me say that I absolutely recognize that. Um, what I have seen, though, as I, as I started my career and began to work through it, there were several times where I was told, um, whether it was, a, whether it was a, in relation to an opportunity for me or an opportunity for someone else, that, um, 
well, well, they're just, they're just still too green or there's not enough gray in their hair. That's one I literally heard. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't, that, that person can't possibly manage a team of six with someone, you know, plus 50 on that team. And I, I think, unfortunately, what that does is it limits the possibilities for that organization, um, which, of course, ultimately impacts students and faculty. Um, and so I, I have a, a great friend and somebody I absolutely also con uh, consider a mentor. And um, I will never forget, she said to me, because I was, I was feeling frustrated about this, like, why? I'm achieving great outcomes. And then people, even if I wasn't seeking an opportunity, people might say, well, you know, give you another 20 years and you'll be ready to be a senior director of development. And I remember thinking like, that is, a, that's almost as long as I've lived, you know? Um, and she said to me, a baby shark bites the same way as the mama shark. Don't ever forget that you're a shark. And it was really, really, um, I, I think about that all the time, um, that certainly I, I always enter a situation understanding that there is a ton to learn, especially from those with um, extraordinary careers, a ton of experience. Um, it's one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to listen to Lynette's session with you is because you, you absolutely know that those that have served for some time have just seen more. Um, but I have been continually blown away by what some of the new younger emerging leaders in this advancement industry are bringing forward. Um, some of the approaches to technology, some of the ways that, that, um, the ways to approach donors, uh, because there are just generational differences that are very important for universities to begin to consider so that they can build a next generation of, um, of donors. I will tell you in my own team, we have, um, we have equal parts, very seasoned, um, tremendous professionals and tremendous professionals that are of younger age. And they're both incredibly valuable and bring important things. Um, what, I, um, what I have found most exciting about some of our, our, our younger, if you will, or earlier career professionals is they are so hungry, Brent. They're hungry, they're humble. Um, I love them always have. Well, Krista, they're millennials. They're, they're <laughs> entitled millennials. Right. What are you talking about? Exactly, and you know what's interesting is people will tell me all the time like, you know, you're, you're, you're in that millennial group. And, I, and look, I think there are absolutely the, 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 the people who get sort of the bad rap for millennials, look, they're in any organization. But there are a lot of people who, whether because of hard life experiences or whatever that character building experiences were, they have a readiness. And again, I go back to that hungry and humble they are going to work hard because they want to prove themselves. They want you to know that they take this seriously. And so I think when you have someone who is earlier in their career that has all of those qualities that still respects, you know, when I enter into a situation, I absolutely still respect the fact that there are someone in that, there are people in that room who I have a lot to learn from, but I absolutely do know um, my work. And I know um, what this organization needs me to do. And it, when those things come together, I think it's a pretty unstoppable combination. Um, and and I, 
uh, my hope is that more organizations will consider that um, as they have professionals that are working their way up through their organizations that on paper, their age looks startling perhaps for a senior role, but if, if they've done all the right things, then why not give them a shot to make it happen for you? Well, there are definitely, um, you know, similar. Uh, you said you feel like uh, part of your early career meeting all these different donors was almost like a masterclass and learning all of these things. That's how I felt in doing these podcasts. And I've, I've worked with people now who have been in the sector for 40 years uh, or people that are in, in that uh, emerging professional and leadership role. Uh, and it is just, um, uh, you know, the common set of characteristics around passion, around work ethic, uh, are, are common uh, across that group. And so I'm really grateful that you've been willing to spend uh, time with us today. I am going to ask, um, are you hiring? I mean, most of higher ed is not hiring right now, but uh, either if you are hiring, let us know. And if you're not, but when you start hiring again uh, down the road, what are you looking for? And uh, when you're now on the other side of the table doing those interviews, uh, maybe you've got a little Karen DeVille that you've, you're channeling and trying to assess what they can do, but also what you can do for them. But what really, um, I guess, stands out when, when you've been interviewing folks over the years? Yeah, so we, we're, we are not hiring at this time um, because we just had to restructure. We want to make sure that what we are doing, um, we're doing it right. We're making the right strategic pivots. Um, and, and certainly we would want to be mindful of that as, as anyone would be joining our team. Um, now I think that we are, you know, we've, we in Baton Rouge, I know there's this, we have this in many cities across the country, but, um, they have what the, the best places to work, um, recognition. Um, we have that in Baton Rouge and we have been one of the best voted, one of the best places to work for several years. I think we are, if, you know, if you're looking down the road, uh, you know, Baton Rouge is a, is a phenomenal city with great food, great football, and great fundraising. I call it the three Fs. Um, so, you know, certainly give me a call. When I am interviewing someone, I am looking for someone who first and foremost has uh, humility. Uh, I think that fundraising is a constant, there's a constant feedback loop. Did you do well? Did you not? I think some of our best fundraisers and some of the best fundraisers that I've ever seen are some of the most self-aware people. And I think, you know, you've got to be grounded in humility to, to be able to accept some feedback about yourself. I'm looking for people who are scrappy, gritty, who understand that it's a no for right now and not a no for, for forever. And also scrappy and gritty about themselves. Like I want to be the very best senior director of the College of Business that the world has ever seen. I'm looking for people who are passionate, whatever you're, whether you're passionate about like the best bowl of ramen that you can find in America, or you're like uber passionate about, you know, collecting stamps. That passion, I, I love seeing it harnessed. And if people, you know, if you know, if fundraising and, and, and watching people make an impact for other people doesn't get your heart racing, you know, I don't know, maybe see a cardiologist, but I, you know, I want, I want that person who, who's going to be super passionate. Um, and then finally, what I would say is I'm looking for people who, who sort of have an attitude of gratitude. Um, so, so that when, when those wins come, they're grateful for them. And when those, and when the no's comes, they're also grateful for what they learned in it. Um, 
because that will drive them, of course, to be a better, stronger, faster um, gift officer. And, and certainly, um, you know, I think the, that's sort of a, um, I, I would also add someone who's genuinely intellectually curious. Um, so much of what we do, of course, and, and Brent, you, I know you experience this in spades, you're having conversations with people from so many different walks of life. And, and if you're not genuinely interested in what they have to offer, you know, I think that that can, um, you're not going to have a great time doing your work and it's certainly not going to drive the right outcome. So, um, that's what I would say sort of would be my, would be my five, um, for, for what we are, we're looking for. Terrific. Well, uh, for those listening, this is being recorded in mid-May of 2020. So if it's now mid-May 2021, don't hesitate to, uh, to take a look at the jobs page. Uh, that is if you want to work at a real university. Just kidding. Sorry, I had to go there. Um, thank you, Krista. Uh, congratulations on the new opportunity. Um, best wishes as we all uh, continue to navigate uh, sort of the world right now, but it is really great to just um, see your energy, your passion, your enthusiasm. Uh, and so here's to big things down in Baton Rouge. Absolutely. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Thank y'all. <laughs>